Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Philemon chapter 1, verses 8 through 25. There's only one chapter in Philemon, of course. Our context is this. In the first seven verses, Paul introduces his letter to Philemon, says some nice things about him, talks about Philemon's love, talks about his participation in the faith, about his love and faith toward Jesus and all the saints, and so forth. And so, having buttered up, his dear brother Philemon and his former co-worker Philemon buttered him up pretty good in the first seven verses. And now he is going to put the hit on him, try to ask a favor of Philemon, namely to deal with Philemon's former slave Onesimus in a matter that would go beyond what was required of Philemon. So we start in verses 8, 9, and 10. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I fathered him while I was in chains. Let's start out where Paul says, I have great boldness in Christ to command you. Now, Paul rarely commands anyone to do anything. He does sometimes. But not often. Here's an example of it. Second Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. Now you've got to realize when Paul commands somebody, he doesn't have an army. He doesn't have a police force. He's writing at a distance. He is surely appealing to his moral authority as a respected apostle. He has no ecclesiastical authority. There's, there was no church structure that he could appeal to and say, we're going to have a church trial here and a church court, and I'm going to win this thing. No, it's straight out moral appeal. So we got to take that word command in, in context of Paul's situation and his current and his, and his common practice. Now, here's some other factors working against Paul's authority in this particular case. Philemon wasn't working with Paul at the time the letter was sent. He was his, co- his co-worker. He calls him his co-worker in another verse, which we'll get to shortly, or maybe we've already done it, I can't remember, but Paul, somewhere in the letter, first chapter here, Paul has called Philemon a co-worker, but not now, because Paul's in jail now in Rome, so that gives him less authority to command Philemon. Paul didn't start Philemon's church. That's another reason that Paul didn't have any kind of extra authority, if you will, to command Philemon, because Philemon's uh, Paul had started Philemon's church, and my golly, I started the church, you do what I say? No, he didn't do that. Paul appealed to Philemon as a fellow believer and co-worker in Christ. He appeals to Philemon's duty as a Christian. He could, he, he would, he could claim freeing Onesimus was Philemon's duty. That's what he did. It was Philemon's duty as a Christian, not because Paul had authority over him. Here's what John Gill says about this quote. This was, quote, his duty and was obligatory upon him agreeable to the doctrines of Christ, who taught men to love their enemies, to be reconciled to their brethren that had offended them, especially when they repented. And therefore it was fit and proper that he should receive his servant again, since God had called him by his grace and given him repentance for his sins. All right, so that is one option as to how Paul might have had the authority to command Philemon concerning Anismus. Another option is, Paul was the one who had converted Philemon, as we'll see when we get down to verse 19. Paul had converted Philemon, and so he could say, since you are my spiritual converts, I command you to do something. Well, that You can't command somebody cause something because you converted them. I have several Chinese Christians that I've converted, and they do things that I don't like. 
that are obviously unscriptural and obviously will hurt their life, especially when they're single and contemplating marriage and dating non-Christians. But I can't command them not to do it. I'm thinking of one particular young lady right now has got a non-Christian boyfriend. I led her to the Lord, and every time she mentions the guy's name, she says, I know you're not going to like this. <laughs> no, I don't. But I don't command her. I appeal to her. So, all right, let's look at appeal, that word appeal. Paul does the same thing in verse 9. He says, I appeal to you, Philemon. I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. Now, Adam Clark's got a good quotation about this, about the way Paul dealt with his fellow Christians. Let me give you this quote. St. Paul's discourse at Miletus, his speech before Agrippa, his epistle to the Romans, that to the Galatians, to the Philippians, the second to the Corinthians, and indeed some part or other of almost every epistle exhibit example, examples of a similar application to the feelings and affections of the persons whom he addresses. And it is observable that these pathetic effusions, drawn for the most part from his own sufferings and situation, usually precede a command, soften a rebuke, or mitigate the harshness of some disagreeable truth. Now, notice that Paul uses the word appeal again in verse 10. I, well, verse 9, it says, I, Paul, dot, 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 verse 10, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. So, even though he uses the word command in verse 8, he uses the word appeal in verse 9 and the word appeal in verse 10. And so, we need to get, don't get the wrong idea about that word command. Now, Paul mentions the fact that he is an elderly man. He's in his 60s now. Probably was killed sometime 65, 66. You know, the date people disagree on exactly when he was executed. It's probably after Nero did him in, probably because, probably because he had, he was probably in jail, as a matter of fact, during his second imprisonment because of trying to start a religion that was opposed to the pagan Roman gods. But at any rate, he was old. Well, that was, his, that was his second imprisonment I just talked about. Right now, he's under house arrest, his first imprisonment in the first couple of years of the 60s, and that would make him, in, in his 60s, he was an elderly man. And, of course, in his 60s, I'm 68. I'm starting to feel pretty old. But back then, in the ancient world, if you're in your 60s, yeah, you're an elderly man. A lot of people didn't live that long. And he was also a prisoner because he was on the house arrest. And the reason he was on the house arrest is because he was accused unjustly of starting a riot in Jerusalem, and the Roman authorities couldn't convict him because there was no evidence. And they wouldn't convict him. And so they sent him, since Paul got tired of being held in prison waiting for, for them to spring him, which they should have done, he appeals to the emperor and they ship him to Rome. They ship him to Rome and he is there under house arrest. Paul uses these facts to appeal to Philemon's sympathies. So he's not commanding him. He says, look, I'm an old man in chains. Please, please do what I want concerning my son. Because Paul apparently led Onesimus to Christ while Paul is under house arrest in Rome. During his first imprisonment, I appealed to you for my son Onesimus. I fathered him while I was in chains. That means he led him to the Lord. Now, when Paul says he's an old man, I just assume that he was elderly in age. And I think that's true. Let's go into this a little deeper First of all, I said that Paul was appealing to Philemon based on his age, but because he's old and weak and so forth. But Gil says he might be appealing to the wisdom that Paul has in being so old. I don't think so, but it's an interesting idea. Clark suggests that Paul is probably about 56 or less, but I think Clark is just guessing. I'd just say he's 60 or so, Paul. When Paul says he's an elder, here's another option. Instead of being elderly in age, maybe it's an elder in the Church of Christ and 
when he says I'm old in the church, if, if, if you take it that way as being old in the church, it could be old in the sense of age, I'm one of the older members of the church, or it could be he's an official elder, but Paul wasn't an officer in any local church. That's Gill's speculation. He's good at speculating. That's not what it's talking about, folks. Here's another good one that Adam Clark comes up with. He says that Paul is appealing to himself as an ambassador. ambassador. Here's what Clark says. The word presbus signifies not only an old man, but also an ambassador, because older elderly men were chosen to fulfill such an office because of their experience and solidity. And presbutes, for presbutes, is used in the same sense and for the same reason by the Septuagint. Hence, some have thought that we should translate here Paul the ambassador. Why would Paul tell Philemon that he was an ambassador? I don't know what the reason for that would be. And very few people, very few translations translate it that way. Clark says some do. Well, yes, some people do, but that's an extreme minority opinion. All right, but I just mentioned that for the sake of completeness. Now, in verse 10, Paul calls Onesimus, Onesimus his son. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I followed him while I was in change. Of course, that means his spiritual son. That doesn't mean that Paul was his physical father, had sex with somebody while he was in prison. Of course not. He was his son. And in verse 19, we read that Philemon was also Paul's spiritual son. Philemon 1.19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, repay the damage that Onesimus had done to Philemon. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your very self. Well, what does that mean? Why does Philemon owe Paul his life? Maybe Paul physically saved him from getting attacked by a lion or dragged somewhere in a riot? I don't think so. I mean, it could be, but I think it's talking about Philemon owes his spiritual life to Paul because Paul led him to the Lord, and I'm going to assume that, even though it doesn't explicitly say that. If so, then we have the situation here. Philemon, the slaveholder, and Onesimus, the slave, were brothers in Christ. Now think about the radical implications of that. The radical social ramifications of that are obvious. Because in Christ, there's no slave or free. Galatians 3.28, there's no Jew or Greek. Slave or free, male and female, since you're all one in Christ Jesus. That's referring to matters of salvation. Of course, they were slave or free. When we refer to legal systems and economic systems and cultural systems and so forth, of course they're slave or free, but in, in, in the matter of spiritual salvation, there is not. And it's just a matter of time before masters and slaves just start treating each other as Christian brothers that some people are going to say, you know, maybe we ought not to do this anymore. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, quote, Scripture does not sanction slavery, but at the same time does not begin a political crusade against it. It sets forth principles of love to our fellow men which were sure, as they have done in due time, to undermine and overthrow it without violently convulsing the then existing political fabric by stirring up slaves against the masters. By the way, slave revolts are serious business, boy. I'm telling you, lots of people die, and there's a lot of people that don't care. To get rid of slavery, let's riot, kill people, kill the masters, but the masters will fight back, and then you got blood all over the place. But Christianity is a leavening influence. When masters love their slaves and slaves love their masters with supernatural love, this is something that the world does not understand. That has a big impact. Of course, leftists who don't believe in Jesus refuse to see the social impacts of the ethic of Christianity, but what do you expect? They're blind in other areas too. Now, Paul mentions Onesimus, his son. Onesimus means useful in the Greek there. Onesimus, useful. 
We go to verse 11 in Philemon 1. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. So Paul's making a play on words on Onesimus' name with useless. John Gill says that Paul actually understated the situation here when he said Onesimus was useless. He said he was actually more than useless. He was, yea, injurious and hurtful, one that was an eye servant that lorded away his time and set an ill example to fellow servants. And not only so, but embezzled his master's goods and robbed him and run away from him. Well, I don't know how Gil knows that about Anisimus. I guess he's just speculating. But if all of that were true, then, wow, yeah, Anisimus is now useful to Philemon and to Paul, as Paul says. And so Anisimus the useful is useful to Philemon. How could... Onesimus be useful to Philemon. Well, he would be a better servant, obviously, as John Gill says, but I think that Onesimus would be more useful to Philemon because now Onesimus would be a helper in the work of the gospel. And how can Onesimus now not only be useful to Philemon, but useful to Paul? Because Paul says Onesimus is useful both to you, Philemon, and to me. Well, in the public work of the ministry, says John Gill, how about just taking care of Paul in, in, in his house arrest. That would be useful. Martin Luther had a interest, an interesting quote about this situation. Luther said that Paul interceded for Onesimus the way Jesus interceded to God for us. We were slaves. Jesus goes to God, the master of the universe and master of us all. We were slaves to sin. We weren't slaves to God. But he goes to God and says, would you please let suffering mankind out of its slavery to sin just like Paul is saying to Philemon, would you please let Onesimus out of his slavery? We go now to verse 12. I am sending him back to you as a part of myself. Paul actually is using Onesimus to carry the letter to Philemon, actually. And we know that by reading this, I am sending him back. That means Onesimus is leaving Rome, going back to Colossae to see Philemon. Now, Paul had no legal right to emancipate Onesimus. He's, so he's appealing to Onesimus personally to emancipate He's appealing to Philemon personally to emancipate Onesimus. Legally, it can only be done by Philemon. So he had to send him back if he wants to get Philemon legally emancipated. I mean, he could Paul could have refused to send him back and say, yeah, you were free. But the problem is he'll still be a runaway slave legally. If he ever got caught or so, it could be bad. So he sent him back and appealed to Philemon to emancipate him. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. The Christian religion never cancels any civil relations. A slave on being converted and becoming a free man of Christ has no right to claim on that ground emancipation from the service of his master. Justice, therefore, required St. Paul to send back Onesimus to his master, and conscience obliged Onesimus to agree in the propriety of the measure. But love to the servant induced the apostle to write this conciliating letter to the master. Now, why does Paul say here in verse 12 that he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon as a part of Paul himself, as a part of myself, referring to Paul? Why? Because Paul was Onesimus' spiritual father, and so therefore Onesimus was part of Paul. When you lead somebody to the Lord, they sort of become a part of you. In verse 17 of the letter, which we'll get to in a few minutes, so if you consider me a partner, Paul tells Philemon, accept him as you would me, because me because I and Onesimus are one. We're part of each other. So you accept him, you accept me. You accept me, you ought to accept him too. So Paul closely ties himself to Onesimus spiritually, personally, in every way. 
Philemon's 1, verses 13 through 14, I wanted to keep him with me, Paul continues, so that in my imprisonment for the gospel he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation but of your own free will. Now, of course, when Paul says I wanted to keep him with me, it means in Rome where he's under house arrest. He wants Onesimus, he said, if, if, if Onesimus would stay with me in Rome... He might serve Paul in Philemon's place. How could Onesimus serve Paul? Well, he could provide for Paul's necessities of life, go buy him food and medicine and stuff, that kind of thing. Or he could serve Paul in the ministry of the word. It's probably both. Now, notice in verse 13 that Paul says that he suggests that Onesimus might serve Paul in your place, in your Philemon's place. That implies that Philemon has served Paul before. Well, in another verse he calls Philemon his co-worker, so maybe they did minister together or whatever. And of course Philemon would serve Paul just like Onesimus did because Philemon was Paul's spiritual son, likewise. Now think about this. The fact that Paul knew Philemon so well was providential for Onesimus because Paul could now make a very personal appeal to Philemon to emancipate Onesimus, which I'm sure would make Onesimus very, very happy. Now, I wonder would Paul have sent Onesimus back to a master who was a stranger to Paul and who might not have been a Christian and who might have been treating Onesimus badly or maybe even terribly. Who knows? It's interesting speculation, is it not? But, you know, you can't. You can always speculate about counterfactuals we don't know, but we do know that Onesimus was really blessed providentially that his master was such a good friend with Paul. Now, Paul says, 14, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. But what, he, what he's saying there is he's trying to prevent a possible objection by Philemon. Philemon might say, well, if Onesimus was so profitable to you, why did you send him back? And the answer to that possible objection by Philemon would be, the reason I sent him back was, is I wanted to do everything with your consent. I wanted to free him, but I wanted to free him with your consent. He never comes right out and asks for the emancipation of Onesimus, but the implication is quite strong. And he's saying, I didn't want to just steal Onesimus from you. I want you to do it with your consent. Now, this shows how modest and humble Paul was. He didn't start lecturing Philemon and saying, you need to let him loose. He didn't do that. Paul could have just written Philemon asked Philemon to forgive Onesimus and let him stay in Rome. He, that was another thing he could have done. But this was a delicate touch on Paul's part, Adam Clark says, asking for Philemon's consent. That way, the freeing of Onesimus would not be conforced by compulsion. Well, Onesimus is gone. I'm never going to get him back. He's living in Rome. I might as well emancipate him. No, it would be from the heart. Onesimus, you are now my Christian brother. I want to emancipate you because of that. The spiritual relationship between Onesimus and Philemon would be clear. If Onesimus is sent back, all the laws are complied with, Philemon gets a chance to voluntarily sacrifice financially by emancipating Philemon, and everything will be clear. Paul's a wise guy, a wise man here. Philemon 1, verses 15 and 16. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you, Paul continues. Separated from you, Philemon, for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
Now, when Paul says that Onesimus was separated from Philemon for a brief time, he's being very euphemistic, as Clark points out, because Onesimus had actually run away. Yeah, he was separated because Onesimus was a runaway slave, see? So, but Paul doesn't put the most negative connotation on that. He, he's very gentle about the fact that Philemon's lost his slave. And remember now, slave owners don't own slaves because they like being slave owners. They own slaves for labor, for work. Owning slaves was a pain. You had to manage them, just like having employees is a pain. Except with these slaves, you got not only manage their conflicts and their lack of work or their work quality, you got to worry about their family relationships. And what happens when they get old and can't work anymore? You got to pay. You got to take care of their old age care and all that kind of stuff. And that might be why, in the ancient world, slaves were considered part of a household. You got to take care of the birth of the baby slave. I remember I heard a Yale historian. I was listening to some Greek history, and he had a friend in, at Yale who was an American historian, and he said, you know, everybody talks about the emancipation of slaves, talking about the American slavery in the American South in the eight, 19th century, and he says, but, but he said, I'll tell you who was really emancipated was the slave owners, because it was a hassle to own slaves, you know, so, and I just kind of a weird way of looking, I just hadn't thought about that before until I heard that, but at any rate, Paul is asking He's asking Philemon to make a financial sacrifice. True, owning Onesimus might be a problem, but the only reason that slave owners put up with those problems was because they got labor and, and they, they paid for the slaves. That means they made a financial sacrifice. And so for Onesimus, for Philemon to emancipate Onesimus, Philemon's going to take a financial hit. And so Paul's getting ready to hint at that very broadly. He says, look, Philemon, you can get Onesimus back permanently as opposed to this physical separation for a while, permanently, no longer as a slave. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that you can get Philemon back no longer as a, a mere slave, but more than a slave, a mere slave who is now your brother? He's still going to be your physical slave, but he's going to be your Christian brother. That's one view. That's John Gill's view, says that John... Paul's not trying to break the law here. He's saying you're going to get him back. He's still going to be a slave, but he's not going to be a mere slave. Clark, Adam Clark says that. Here's what Adam Clark says, quote, Do not receive him merely as thy slave. All right, well, that's one option. It is possible to be a permanent physical slave and a permanent Christian brother simultaneously at the same time. And so then Paul is saying you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave. In other words, no longer as a mere slave. He, but he, he'll be a permanent physical slave, but he won't be just a mere physical slave. He will be a Christian brother in addition to being a physical slave. All right, that's option one. Option two is this. You might get him back permanently, no longer as a physical slave, no longer as a legal slave, but more than a legal slave as a dearly loved brother. Well, in favor of that option is the phrase that comes follow, that follows, you will receive him back permanently, no longer as a slave. Now, of course, I've, in other contexts, I've noticed, I don't, I don't know why I've noticed this, but I've noticed that the New Testament Greek rarely uses merely, because I kept find, finding myself in interpreting verses, I kept having to say, well, what he meant to say was dot, 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 merely dot, dot, dot. They do this all the time. They don't put the merely in there like we do. So I'll, I'll leave that up in the air 50-50. I'm not sure what he means, but whether he means that Onesimus is going to continue to be Philemon's slave, the personal relationship was going to change because whatever their legal relationship was, their spiritual relationship, which is more important, was going to predominate. That reminds me of my grandmother, uh, who for over 30 years 
had a black servant named named Millie, and those two, and they, and this is growing up in the segregated South, and huge cultural differences. And Millie was she was poor, and she lived in the poor side of town, the black side of town. And my grandmother and her got to be pretty close, and I never I never noticed it until I watched. That movie, Driving Miss Davy, with Jessica Tandy, what was it? I think it was Morgan Freeman that was the, the chauffeur, the black chauffeur for Jessica Tandy, who was kind of aristocratic Southern lady. And it was during the time of segregation, too, I think. And those two got to be very close in that movie. And it made me realize something about my grandmother and Millie that I had never seen before. And she got old. Millie got old, and she could hardly walk. And she finally said, Miss Williams, I have to retire. And so she retired. She took her stuff and she went. She went home. And all of a sudden, a week later, Millie shows up for work without telling my grandmother or grandfather that she was coming. And she says, "Miss Williams, I can't quit." And in the segregated South, when my grandmother died, Millie was sitting in the front of the segregated church with the family. I'm sorry, I can't hardly remember this without getting choked up about it. I cried for about an hour after I watched the doggone Driving Miss Davy movie, but we're going to see Millie in heaven, and she is not going to be a poor black segregated cook. She is going to be our Christian sister more than a segregated black cook. She's going to be more than that. She's going to be our Christian sister, a dearly loved Christian sister. Reminds me of another story um, back in slavery times, back in the 19th century, pr- President Andrew Jackson was dying and he had all his slaves around him and he looked at him and everybody was emotional and crying and everything and he, he looked at him and he says something to the effect that where I'm going, I'm going to see you. He was basically, I think he was trying to comfort them to ask them to quit crying and all he says, because when I, when I see you again, I'm going to see you in heaven and there is no slavery in heaven. Now, in verse 16, Paul says that Onesimus is especially so to me, means a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but even more to you, he's a dearly loved brother to you too, Philemon, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Well, the question is, is how can Onesimus be a brother to Philemon in the flesh? Obviously, spiritual they are because they're spiritual brothers, but in the flesh, one was a slave owner and one was a slave. How can that be? Gail speculates it's because Onesimus and Philemon were from the same city, Colossae, so they're brothers because they're same from the same city. I, I get, you got to be careful about cross-cultural interpretation here because this idea about being brothers in the same city, I noticed it in China. In fact, it, it happened a lot. They had a word, I forgot the word for it, but there was a Chinese word that basically like in the South we say a home, home folk or homeboy, you know. I remember I was working construction helping build an Assembly of God church in somewhere north of Chicago. And they, the pastor of this church got volunteer help in the Assembly of God denomination, and he got a cement guy from my home state. Not my hometown, but my home state. And he was a working-class guy, and he comes up there, and, he, and he's get, getting a little skinny me. I'm a seminary student. You know, he's got skinny me with a concrete bag pouring the concrete into the cement mixer and almost flattened me the bag was so heavy and and of course he's laughing at me I'm a you know I'm a nerd I'm a I'm a student I'm not a construction worker and so he's all the time poking fun at me and he, and he started he called me homeboy he never called me names homeboy well there is something about that I mean 
I was in Shiko, China, which is right outside, about 19 miles outside of Ningbo, China, where I was teaching in the university, and that was where Shanghai Czech, Zhang Jiaxi, Shanghai Czech was born and raised, and he's become a tourist spot, which amazed me because of communist China, and he's Zhang Jiaxi, Shanghai Czech is considered such a bad guy to the Chinese, but they had tons of, I mean, just tons of tourists going in there. So we were on a bus, and there was two strangers sitting in the seat in front of me. And I heard them talking to one another, where are you from? They were just making polite conversation. And both of them said, Shanghai. Oh, you're from Shanghai? And they just lit up, and they became the best of friends, and they're talking and sharing. And I'm thinking, Shanghai's got 13 million people in. When you count the migrants from the countryside, about 20 million people. So what if they're from Shanghai? What does that prove? Nothing. But there was something about being from the same place. Anyway, that's what Gil's idea is, that Onesimus and Philemon are in from in the flesh because they're they're brothers in the flesh because they're from the same city. In other words, they're city brothers. I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about, but I just thought I'd give a good case for Gill's position or or his suggestion. Now, Gill and Clark also suggest that the reason that Paul said Onesimus was a dearly beloved brother to Philemon in the flesh is because Onesimus was considered to be a part of Philemon's family. Slaves often were considered family in the Roman Empire. And so that's what Paul's referring to. He's of your flesh. He's of your household. I think that's probably the answer. Adam Clark has an off-the-wall suggestion as another option. He says that Paul, when he says that Onesimus is Philemon's brother in the flesh, is referring to the legal right which Philemon had in him. In other words, they were brothers in the flesh because one was a master and one was a slave. Now, come on, Clark. How can you say that? How does having a legal right and a slave make somebody a brother after the flesh? I don't think so. I think it was the part, the, the idea that slaves were considered to be a part of the family. Just like Millie was sitting in the family section in that segregated church when my grandmother died. She was considered part of the family. Philemon's 117. So if you consider me a partner, Paul continues speaking to Philemon. If you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. Now, what does Paul mean as a partner? Adam Clark says as a companion and as a friend. One option. Another option is a partner in the ministry. Philemon, Philemon 1.1 1, 1 says this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. So you see Philemon is a co-worker with Paul and Timothy. And so that's probably what Paul means. If you consider me, Philemon, a partner, a co-worker in the ministry, except we're co-workers. So if you accept me, accept Onesimus. There's no difference. Accept him as you would me. Now, Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest that it's a partner, that Paul is referring to the fact that he was a partner in Christian fellowship with Onesimus. If you consider me a partner in our fellowship together, well, that's not quite as strong, I think. I think it's Paul was referring to his partnership with Philemon in the ministry. We go to verses 18 and 19, Philemon 1. Paul continues. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. Now, Paul mentions the unpleasant fact that perhaps Onesimus is wrong, Philemon. There's probably a good chance that he had. He was a runaway slave. Typical thing slaves did. They squandered time. They spoiled their work. They might have corrupted their fellow servants. As Gill points out, I read a 19th century laissez-faire capitalist critique of slavery in the South, and I wish I could remember who wrote it. I don't remember. It was fairly famous at the time. 
But he went around and examined uh, slavery in the, in the antebellum South, and he pointed out how economically inefficient it was because the slaves didn't have a stake in their work, and their work product didn't belong to them, and so they didn't care. It's kind of like the difference between rented houses and owned houses. If you own a house, you'll take care of it, but if you're if it's somebody else's house, you don't take as good care of it. That's just human nature, and so slaves, by, the, by their status, are likely not going to on their own incentive and on their own motion, take care of their master's job as well as they would if they're working for themselves. And not only that, I mean, Philemon had to shell out some money for Onesimus, and Onesimus is gone, so he's lost his capital investment in Onesimus. So Paul is referring to that now. It's a problem he's got to get around if he's going to get Onesimus emancipated. Paul says if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, maybe he stole some money, or maybe he embezzled some money or stole some goods. Or how about just the labor that was lost because he ran away? Whatever. Paul is saying, whatever, charge that to my account. Now, Adam Gill says that perhaps Anesimus had stolen something. John Gill thinks that Anesimus might have stolen something. But Adam Clark says he, he doesn't think that that's a real possibility. He doesn't think that Paul really thought that Anesimus had robbed his master. I don't know. Why wouldn't a slave before he was born again not have robbed his master? That's a live option if you ask me. But at any rate... There's no doubt that Philemon had suffered loss, and Paul says, charge it to my account. Now, that's real nice. Paul is dirt poor. He ain't got two denarii to rub together. Charge it to my account, he says. I'll make good all the losses. Yeah, I can see Paul paying for Philemon's purchase price, whatever that was. I heard, I read somewhere that it was 30 pieces of silver, the same amount that Judas paid, got paid to betray Jesus. But at any rate, Paul didn't have 30 pieces of silver. He didn't have anything. So... Paul is offering, and it sounds like Paul's offering to repay any current charges, not the capital investment in Onesimus. And if that's so, then Philemon would still be out of Onesimus's initial purchase price, and so freeing, emancipating Onesimus would still be an act of charity, even if Paul made up for the other losses. Now, it doesn't sound to me like Paul really expected Philemon to demand payment on him. The second half of the verse says, not to mention that you owe me even your own self. In other words, he's, what he's saying is, hey, you're not going to charge it to my account are you because after all what's on my side of the ledger is i got you saved from going to hell paul i don't think really expected philemon to demand payment from him i think he was doing this as a rhetorical a rhetorical device philemon's 121 a couple of verses later says this since i am confident of your obedience i am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than i say well even more would be emancipate but at any rate because paul didn't have any money i think he was just speaking sort of metaphorically here, not financially. Verse 19, he says, I, Paul, I write this with my own hand. What does that refer to? It could refer to the whole letter of Philemon, which I think it does. And by the fact that he's writing it in his own hand, that gives it more clout, more authority. Hey, you got it in my own handwriting, I'm going to repay. Paul did not use an amanuensis in this personal letter. He wrote the whole thing in his own hand. So that this is referring to the probably the whole letter. It could be referring to a promissory note somebody speculated. John Gill, of course the consummate speculator, a promissory note. I'm writing this note, this promissory note with my own hand. Here's a legal document. I don't think so. I think he's referring to the letter of Philemon. Notice another rhetorical device that Paul uses. Verse 19, I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. Well, he did mention it, didn't he? That's a common rhetorical device called paralepsis. I'm not going to tell you how many times you've messed me over. I'm not even going to talk about it. Well, you just talked about it, didn't you? So that's paralepsis. Paul not using amanuensis was not his usual custom, as Clark says. 
This, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, was a special compliment to Philemon because the letter was written personally with his own hand, not in the hand of a secretary or an amanuensis. Paul says that Philemon owed him his own life. I've already mentioned this earlier. That could mean Paul saved him physically, but I don't think so. I think it means he led him into the kingdom, told him how to get born again. We go to verse 20 and 21 of Philemon 1. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Setting Onesimus free would really give joy to Paul. Notice how Paul calls him his brother. He doesn't, I am your apostle. You are a lowly worker in Colossae. Do what I say. No, none of that. He appeals to him as a brother. Even though Philemon is Paul's spiritual son, he calls him brother, probably because of age. He calls Timothy my son. But Philemon is probably the brother. Family terms. You notice how oftentimes Christians use family terms to call each other. We have a special relationship with each other that transcends race, color, creed, or national origin. Universal. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But at any rate, Paul's not pulling rank on Philemon. He's humble. I have joy for you from you and the Lord. Now the NIV translates that as benefit. I have benefit from you and the Lord because the Greek word is another play on Anesimus' name, which means useful or beneficial. So I have benefit from you and the Lord. Doesn't quite sound as nice, but that's what the NIV says. And how would Paul have benefit if Philemon takes Anesimus back? At least that, and then maybe if he goes further and emancipate him, then oh, that's going to be joy, that's going to be benefit. Verse 21, Paul says, I am confident, Philemon, of your obedience. Obedience to do what? To receive Onesimus again as a brother, as Adam Clark says, quote, forgiving Onesimus and receiving him into thy favor. Well, that would be nice if that's what Paul is expecting of Philemon. But another option is that Paul is expecting Philemon to free Onesimus from slavery. And I think that's what he's saying because he says, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So receive him back. That's the first thing. But then even more, emancipate him on top of that. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that Paul is hinting at the possible manumission of Onesimus or emancipation of Onesimus in addition to Onesimus being kindly received. We go to verse 22, Philemon 1. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Now what does this mean, guest room? Well, it could mean a room in Philemon's house, but it also could mean that Paul wanted Philemon to hire Paul a house in Colossae. Adam Clark says that. Those houses were probably fairly small back then, but who knows? Either way, if it's a guest room in Philemon's house that Paul was expecting to come to, that would stir Philemon up to grant Paul's request concerning Onesimus because Paul would know in person how Onesimus had been treated because he'd be there on the scene, boots on the ground. He'll know exactly what's going on. He can say, okay, are you going to free him or not, Philemon? Put a little bit of personal pressure on Philemon, maybe if he's wavering, perhaps. But at any rate, the fact that Paul asked for a guest room to be prepared shows that he expected to get out of jail. Probably shortly, he expected to get out of jail. He did get out of jail. I say jail. He got out from under house arrest. Now, Paul says, I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. He didn't say, I know that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Now, hope means a confident expectation of something in the future that you can't see now. So it's a confident expectation, but it's not a certain knowledge. Paul was not a name it and claim it, mark it and park it, scream it and redeem it, confess it and possess it, blab it and grab it, speak it and keep it, call it and haul it, Copeland Hagenite. He was not a word of faith guy. 
He didn't know for sure whether he would ever get back to Colossae. He says, I hope that I can. Even if you translate that as having a confident expectation, but you still don't know because nobody knows the future, not even Paul. Not to mention the fact there's no evidence that he ever made it back to Colossae. Some people speculate on the so-called fourth journey after his release from the second imprisonment that he might have made it back, but we don't know that. As John Gill says, we don't. it's not known whether he made it back. As John Gill says, some think he was released from a Rosen from his Roman prison and could have made it back. That's referring to the second imprisonment. That's what I just said. But some think he never got out of prison at Rome. That's who hold the one imprisonment theory, which I don't hold to. But at any rate, we don't know that he made it back to Colossae. We know that he hoped to. And so all you word of faith guys out there, please put that in your pipe and smoke it. Philemon 1, verse 23 through 25. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, there's a bunch of names, fellow workers. Let's go through them and see what we know about each one. First of all is Epaphras. He was a Colossian who worked in the church at Colossae. We know that from Colossians 1-7. You learned this something, I forgot, from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, one of you Colossians, a slave of Christ Jesus, greets you. Now, if he was from Colossae, he's now in Rome because he's greeting the Colossians from Rome where Paul's writing. So at some time he must have been sent to Rome by the Colossians to help Paul, as John Gill says. Just like Epaphroditus was sent to Rome by the Philippians, and that brings up a point here. It's easy to confuse Epaphras and Epaphroditus. I always do. Epaphras is from Colossae. Epaphroditus is from Philippi. Now, Paul calls Epaphras his fellow prisoner. Well, how did that happen? Well, he was probably in prison just like Paul was, John Gill speculates, because by this time, Nero had begun to persecute Christians. Paul probably got out of his house arrest when it was clear that he had nothing to do with Nero's fire. He got out before the fire. People speculate the fire was in 64. But at any rate, that's Epaphras. He was a fellow worker with Paul. Let's look at the fact that Epaphras is said to be a fellow prisoner. Clark says it could have been at some time or other Epaphras had been in prison, not necessarily in Rome. And that's true, it could be. Colossians doesn't mention this imprisonment. Jameson Fawcett and Brown, quoting Benson, says this, quote, Benson conjectures the meaning that the meaning to be that on some former occasion these two were Paul's fellow prisoners, not at the same time. Well, in other words, they're fellow prisoners, but not at Rome. It was a previous time. So it's a little bit loose there, but I'm going to assume that Epaphras was Paul's fellow prisoner in Rome at the same time. Now, Mark is mentioned in the greetings, so, greetings, so Mark was with Paul at Rome at this time. Mark is the nephew of Mary of Joseph, Jerusalem and the cousin of Barnabas. This is the same John Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark, so he's fairly famous. Adam Clark speculates that, or says that, only some people think Mark wrote that gospel. Well, I never heard that before. I think 99% of everybody thinks Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. Mark is the nephew of marriage of Jerusalem and the cousin of John of Barnabas, the famous apostle on the first missionary journey, Acts 12:12. 12, 12, when he, Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. So Mark was from Jerusalem. He had a, his mother Mary there. had a house. Some people speculate Pentecost was held in that, excuse me, the Last Supper was held in that house. I don't know. Colossians 4.10 says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin. That's how we know that Barnabas was Mark's cousin. That word there, cousin, actually is a little fuzzy because I got this from Wikipedia. 
Barnabas is usually identified as the cousin of Mark the Evangelist on the basis of the term anepsios used in Colossians 4, which carries the connotation of cousin. A connotation might not directly be that, so it's a little fuzzy. But we're going to it doesn't matter. Paul and Barnabas were related. Uh, excuse me, Mark and Barnabas were related. And, of course, Barnabas is accused of nepotism when he didn't, when he wanted to take Mark on that first journey, and Paul didn't. And that's always the problem. When you got relatives involved, one's motives might be misconstrued. Let's read about that in Acts 15, 37 through 39. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul did not think it appropriate to take along this man who deserted them in Pamphylia, that's on the first journey, and had not gone on with them to the work. There was such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But now Mark, that was long ago, the first journey in the 40s, late 40s. Now here we are in the early 60s, and Mark's back with Paul at Rome, which shows that they got over their differences. Not only that, later on, after this first imprisonment, somewhere between the two imprisonments, Paul writes 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 11, we, we read this, Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you. Tells Timothy somewhere, wherever you are, and bring Mark to see me. So Mark and Paul are still working, even after Paul's imprisonment. This is the same John Mark who worked closely with Peter. 1 Peter 5:13. The church of Babylon also chosen and sends you greetings, as does Mark. Mark, as is famously known, got most of his information about Jesus' life for the gospel of Mark. He got that information from Peter. Paul mentions that Aristarchus, in Colossians, Aristarchus is his fellow prisoner. Here he just mentions Aristarchus in the letter to Philemon. Aristarchus, well, who is he? In Acts 19.29, we see this. He was from Macedonia. He was from Thessalonica, actually. So Aristarchus got dragged into the auditorium there, the amphitheater in Ephesus during that famous riot. That was on Paul's third, at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. At the end, later, a little bit later after that, several months later, Paul is traveling back to Jerusalem with his collected offering for the poor saints, and Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica accompanied him, Acts 20, verse 4. So Aristarchus, you see, is a trusted co-worker of Paul. Acts 27, 2, so when we aborted a trip, a ship of Adramidium, we put the sea, this of course is coming back from Jerusalem to, to Rome at the end of the third journey. And as they put the sea to sail along the coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a, Macedonia of, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. So you see, Aristarchus was with Paul a good bit. I'm sure he was close friends with him. He mentions Aristarchus in Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. John Gill says Aristarchus followed Paul wherever Paul went. Followed Paul from Ephesus to Rome, back to Jerusalem. Paul mentions Demas here in his closing. This is the same Demas that's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Well, there's the deserting Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, but here Demas is mentioned as a good guy, a co-worker of Paul. So two things happened here, two options of what happened. Philemon was written before 2 Timothy, and I think that's what happened. By the time Paul wrote 2 Timothy, which was between his two last imprisonments, Demas had deserted him. Probably got upset with being associated with a jailbird like Paul. It could be the other way around. If 2 Timothy was written before Philemon, which I don't think anybody believes, but if, if that's possible, then that means Demas deserted Paul at the time of 2 Timothy 4. And then by the time that Paul wrote Philemon, Demas had been reconciled with Paul. I don't think so. That's nice. Very optimistic and encouraging, but I don't think it's true. 
And Demas is also mentioned in Colossians. These two letters are close. Paul sending the letters together, Colossians, Colossians and Philemon. And in the greeting, Demas is mentioned. Demas greets you. May Demas greet you. And Demas greets you, Colossians 4.14. Luke is mentioned here in Colossians in the, in the, in the closing. This is the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, according to John Gill, and I think there's no question. But interestingly enough, Adam Clark is skeptical of that. He says that Luke is supposed to be Luke the Evangelist and author of the Acts of the Apostles. On these suppositions, little confidence can be placed. They may be correct. They may be otherwise. Well, little confidence? Okay, well, I don't think so. Paul calls these people co-workers, these list of names I've just gone through, co-workers. He calls them that even though they weren't close to him in gifts and abilities. I think I may have mentioned this already. This is the same list of co-workers that was mentioned at the end of the letter to the Colossians, except I haven't mentioned this. Colossians has an extra guy, Jesus Justice. I don't know why Paul left Jesus Justice out of the sign-off to Philemon. I don't think it matters that much. Now, in verse 25, Paul says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Who's the your? Well, that your is plural in the Greek. English, of course, fudges the number singular or plural, but in the Greek it's clearly plural. So what are the options? The Philemon's, the whole church there that was meeting in Philemon's house, that's Adam Clark suggests that, or maybe it's referring to Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus, the three Colossians who were mentioned at the first of the letter to Philemon. He says, may the grace of the Lord be with your spirit. That's a strange terminology. You never hear people talk about this. We don't talk like that. Here's two other examples of it. Galatians 6.18, Brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 2 Timothy 4.22, The Lord be with your spirit. Why did Paul use this terminology? All right, I haven't read any commentators on this. These are my two options, my guesses. Take them with a grain of salt. Option number one, spirit is a metonymy for the person. In other words, we say the White House, we mean the whole government of the United States, not just one house painted white. Spirit is a metonymy for the person. So may the grace of the Lord be with you, Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and the whole church at Colossae, with your spirit, meaning be with your person. Like we say, how many souls are on board when the ship went down? The soul is a metonymy for the whole body, body, soul, and spirit. We just talk about soul. Spirit could be the same way. Or Paul could be referring to the spiritual part of his addresses. He's not talking about the whole person. He's talking about the spiritual part of Philemon. And Archippus, and Aphia, and maybe the whole church in Colossae. Jesus is spiritual, may he be with your spiritual spirit. Because the spirit is the most important part of a person. I don't know. I'll leave that up for your decision. I am happy to say I'm finished with the whole book of Philemon here. In our next audio, we will take up a verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. Hope to see you then, and I hope you enjoyed this audio. 